Hi, my name is Rachelle. I'm 35, and I just recovered from COVID by using your protocol. So I started feeling, um, my symptoms started with uh, pressure and congestion in my chest. I thought it was allergies at first, um, so I didn't take anything right away. By day three, I was starting to feel tired and achy. Um, I took a, I started the, the old version of the protocol with just a single dose of ivermectin that night and continued that for five days. Um, within an hour of taking it the first time, I could breathe just fine. And the next day, I was having more symptoms of achiness, um, a little bit of a headache. And after my second dose, all of those symptoms went away and never came back. My husband took it prophylactically. He had tested negative, I tested positive. So I did the protocol for five days um, and mostly was fine. A little short of breath, a lot of nasal congestion uh, with like very sticky and clear um, snot. Sorry, not very elegant. Um, and after the, day, the fifth day, I stopped taking, taking everything and then everything just sort of came to a standstill. Uh, no progression, didn't get any worse either, but didn't get any better. So on um, September 5th, I consulted a nurse practitioner who put me back on the protocol with a double dose this time of ivermectin and added azithromycin and uh, probiotics. And by day four of that second round, I had no more symptoms. I still had the loss of smell, but that's been coming back uh, progressively. Uh, two days ago, I was able to run a mile, about 20 minutes with no problems, um, no problems breathing, no shortness of breath. So I'm very grateful that I had such a mild experience of COVID and, um, and I hope that my story uh, helps get the word out even more about the benefits of ivermectin and early treatment protocols. Well, that's another great story. And thank you, Rochelle, for sharing it with us because these stories from patients like Rochelle and from doctors and nurses the world over are really what keep our team going, especially when the attacks come in. More on the attacks in a minute. But first, welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the Creative Director of the Alliance. And I'm here with someone who is an answer to your request. Uh, we, you, you know, you complained and we heard you. You've complained that we never answer enough of your questions on the Q&A that comes at the end of the program. And, and that's true. We know there are hundreds that are always left over. So meet our own nurse anesthetist. Uh, who is our clinical advisor to this organization, Christina Maros, and she's going to be answering your questions tonight while the program is going on. You get the whole hour and probably a little more than that. Uh, behind the scenes, you're going to be able to ask a lot of specific questions that you never get time, they never get on uh, other times. And I'm going to give a few questions at the end of their presentation to the doctors as usual, but in addition, Christina and two other nurses are going to be on, I think, is it on chat or on Q&A? They're going to be on throughout the entire hour. Christina, can you tell us who else is on with you and how this is going to work? 
Sure. Tonight, I'm joined by Scott Marsland, a nurse practitioner, and Jackie Larson, a registered nurse, and we are going to be answering clinical questions in the Q&A. So just clinical questions in the Q&A. We can't give medical advice, but we will glad to be, we, we're glad to answer any questions anyone has. We only ask that only the clinical questions come into the Q&A and not other comments like the chat box. So chat is for chatting, Q&A is for questions. Okay. It sounds Sounds really good. And I know we'll get a lot. You'll get a lot. You'll be busy. You'll be very busy, probably beginning right now. Now then, about the attacks. Most of you probably have no idea of the full extent of the attempts to discredit and destroy the reputations and the work of the doctors on our medical team uh, that have been coming in ever since they wrote research studies uh, and had them published in medical journals uh, about the medicines that they knew, knew through their own research, uh, as well as their own experience, holding the hands of patients in hospitals, treating COVID patients safely and effectively, uh, the medicines that have worked with this disease. You would think that they would have won awards for all of the suffering that they uh, you know, alleviated and the deaths that did not happen as a result of the work that they've done. Yeah, well, not exactly. Instead, these highly published clinicians whose works have been cited by thousands of doctors all over the world who recognize that the work is valuable and important and they've used it to help save lives. Instead, uh, their work has been inexplicably retracted. And in some cases, new work has been rejected by leading medical journals. So here tonight to explain some of what's going on are two of the people who've been attacked and you love them both. One of them is of course our own Pierre Corey. The other one is Flavio Caridiani. But first Pierre, can you uh, kind of lead this discussion? Yeah, I think you mentioned you want me to explain how this happened. I don't know. Maybe I'll just report the facts and uh, Can let anybody the audience explain reach it? their own conclusions. But uh, I'll, 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 I'll lay it down straight for sure. Uh, okay, here we go. The awkward transition to, how do I want to start? Yeah, it's been a rough week in the medical journal. So tonight, I'm, I'm just going to go through some of the stuff that's happened to us in the journals, others in the journals uh, recently and over the last year. Um, you know, again, you guys know the theme. Those of you guys have been here before. Uh, we are essentially fighting a war on repurposed drugs. Ivermectin is only one, uh, is not the only one that's been fought against. And this war has been going on for decades. Um, you know, after I go through some of my stuff, you know, Dr. Katajani is going to go through. Uh, he and I were just, uh, we just gave a, a conference. We gave lectures at a conference this weekend in Phoenix. And um, Flava gave a talk and it was really a really powerful talk. And there was a section of his talk where he talked about sort of his own and his group's persecution for their science. And he's published much more widely on ju than just on ivermectin. Um, he's he published on a number of effective therapeutics and, and he's gone under some uh, pretty, pretty just almost un unfathomable attacks uh, of his integrity, of his science, of his efforts. And it's, uh, 
it's really a whole lot of sadness. And so this isn't a pleasant topic, but I think it's real. And I think it's really important that everyone understands what's going on and how this war is waged, because this is a war for truth. It, it, we are fighting a war of information. And, and I think most of the havoc in this world is really about what mis, dis, malinformation, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, I just know what's true and what's not. Um, I don't know what, what to call it, but you guys know the theme, right? Um, the way in which this war is waged. So when there are interests that have non-scientific objectives, they employ what's called disinformation. Generally, corporations do this. They do it across many industries, and they have a number of tactics. These tactics were, again, developed by the tobacco industry. They were the forefathers of disinformation. They suppressed the science of the harms of tobacco for 50 years, and they were highly, highly successful at it. And they made many, many, many billions, while many, many millions died. That is the theme, and that is what happens. Um, it's it's the scale of that stuff we wouldn't have believed two years ago, but now it's just almost normal to talk about. So this is the old playbook. And then I'm gonna drill down a little deeper because I'm gonna talk tonight about what you see in the journals and how the journals really can just wreak just massive influence because they really can influence all, the mind of almost every doctor um, who doesn't read critically, doesn't read deeply, doesn't read widely, reads headlines, reads abstracts, and just reads big impact journals. And they know that. And they put those headlines there. They put those abstracts there. No one's thinking critically. And everyone thinks they're reading. And then the doctors walk away saying, yeah, I know this stuff doesn't work. This is nonsense. And so they do it in a number of ways, right? So <clears throat> There are ghost-written articles and editorials that they hire people to write. There is a whole industry of medical writers that will publish journals. They clearly, we've talked about that. They only will publish negative results, particularly of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. They will reject positive studies. And then they also design studies uh, known to fail, which was kind of the main method of how they killed hydroxychloroquine, which is by designing uh, failed studies. And then now they're pulling a new one. This is really new, guys. So retracting a peer-reviewed study. So in our collective careers in the FLCCC, it's somewhere around 1,500 peer-reviewed publications. Up until this year, when we've had a number now of papers retracted, um, that's been unprecedented. To pass through peer review and then get retracted without uh, clear evidence of plagiarism or fraud is never happens. And so, but they're doing this stuff and they really show that the science is incredible and the scientists are incredible. And that's all part of the disinformation, right? And then they obviously using media and social media, they jump on what's on the journals and then they just blare it out with megaphones across the world. And so they can convince huge portions of the planet and most of the medical system that this is not credible science and these are not effective medicines and people die, they die. So what happened this week? So this is a paper that I've cited for a long time. This is a paper done by senior leaders of major health departments and ministries in Mexico, who in this massive, like almost a mass casualty uh, event last year, 2020 winter, uh, where the hospitals were filling, they're running out of oxygen, they were just overwhelmed with COVID. They employed an early treatment strategy and they distributed like 50,000 kits across the city to the hardest hit areas. And they did it as almost a humanitarian intervention. It was not supposed to be a research study. It was not about consent. This was offered to patients. Not everyone took them, but they felt that there was enough evidence of efficacy at the time to launch this program. And they did it. 
and they found massive benefits. Those who took the kits and took the medicines, the medicines, I think it was uh, ivermectin, um, zinc and aspirin or paracetamol or something. So really the only effective medicine that could have made such a difference was the ivermectin. And so that paper has been on a preprint for a long time. Out of nowhere, it got retracted from a preprint. And so they decided, someone decided this week they had to go after it. And so this is the grounds for the decision. And just look at the wording of the grounds. It is so bizarre. I mean, when I say this stuff is not subtle, look at this. Number one, the paper is spreading misinformation, promoting an unproved medical treatment in the midst of a global pandemic. So wait, this is a paper promoting that? No, this is a paper analyzing data from a program where they found that those who took ivermectin did far, 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 far better than those who didn't. So they're trying to show that there's evidence of efficacy. They're not trying to promote an unproved medical treatment. They just analyzed data and they reported their analyses. It's a serious paper. And then look how we're unproven keeps showing up. So because it's not proven, that means it invalidates the paper. The paper is part of what you use to prove efficacy. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, if you stop for a second, you're just like, the world doesn't make sense. Number two, the paper is part of a justification for a government program that unethically dispenses or did dispense unproven medication. The, the authors in their paper and in their public statements, they clearly said that they convened, they did exactly what doctors should have done in this pandemic. They convened a committee of scientists, research clinicians, those treating people on the ground. And on a consensus opinion, they all felt that there was enough evidence of efficacy and safety on ivermectin and a risk benefit analysis. They employed a program citywide and they saved thousands and thousands of lives. And yet this paper, this uh, preprint server decides to call them unethical and retract the paper. They never said it was a prospective study. This is just doctoring. It was not meant to do research. This was actually uh, a retrospective where they used just databases that were people reg registered. And so I don't know why, but suddenly now this week they decide to, uh, to uh, withdraw the paper. And they also say here, if you look down here, um, uh, we've decided to do it here. I would love to, the authors did not properly disclose their conflicts of interest. Okay, let's review their conflicts of interest, folks. So who wrote this? The head of the Digital Agency for Public Innovation. So he's a governmental leader, co-authors, Mexican Social Security Institute, which uh, governs a lot of their health care, and the Mexico City Ministry of Health. Does anyone see Pfizer or Merck there? I guess maybe they're going to make such big bonuses that they published this paper. This is complete nonsense. These are, these are actually really, these are real public health servants who tried to do what they could to preserve the public health of Mexico City. And all they said is that they found a significant reduction in hospitalizations among patients who received the ivermectin-based medical kit. It's not brain surgery. I mean, it's like they did this, this is what they found, this is what they reported. And, and the, 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 the lead author was so incensed by this. You know, he said, he said the letter called the decision to withdraw their paper unethical, colonialist, and authoritarian. Well, I got a few more words for it, but uh, I think he was being a little bit polite. And so what happens after that? They pull this paper off a reprint, and then what happens? The jackals attack. And so you see Health Policy Watch in this magazine debate, Mexico News Daily, LA Times, Washington Post, all jump on. 
headline after headline after headline. What is the theme, guys, around the world? What is the theme about ivermectin data? It's fraudulent. It's unethical. It's poorly conducted. It's low quality, and it can't be trusted. It's just like in America, it's a horse dewormer. But globally, it's about attacking. It's about, remember this and disinformation? Manufacture uncertainty about science where little or none exists. This is the tactic developed by the tobacco industry. I'm just calling attention. This is how they do it. And you see how this becomes a global phenomenon. Everybody jumps on this. Retraction Watch does it. New site, Capital CDMX, false uh, data. I mean, this is why everybody walking around the globe is like, yeah, ivermectin is BS. You can't believe it. Going back to our stuff, right? So if you look at other ivermectin papers, so you guys have known our story. So this is our first paper. When I first published in Frontiers, it went through three rounds of peer review for a senior governmental scientist, very credible to tops of their field. And they actually accepted our paper publication. Tess Laurie, same thing, rigorous peer review. The public, the editor said, we're not comfortable publishing the paper. This paper by Puya Dagani, one of our uh, colleagues, he, he published this. It was out there, it had 500,000 views, and suddenly it got retracted. These are peer-reviewed papers getting retracted. What is the theme? It's about ivermectin. Do you think there's a war on ivermectin? Jesus. And so the thing about the frontiers thing is how that went down is suddenly they were slow walking the publication. They wouldn't publish, wouldn't publish, wouldn't publish. I was writing increasingly incensed emails and I said I was gonna go public because I suspected scientific misconduct. And then suddenly the lead Frontiers editor of all the Frontiers journals tells me that they commissioned an anonymous peer reviewer, an anonymous peer reviewer, who in contradiction to all the peer reviewers found that our conclusions were unsustained by the data and therefore they moved to retract. We offered to revise, we offered to soften, we offered to do anything, and they said no, retraction. It was never about anything but getting that paper out of the public sphere. And keep in mind, my editor of that journal, of that paper, the editor of the journal was Robert Malone, and his co-editors who were shepherding this journal, which is a journal dedicated to the focus of repurposed drug in, the, in, in, the, in COVID-19, after mine got retracted, all of his papers on famotidine and other medications that were widely available and repurposed, they all got whacked. And, and eventually, uh, Robert Malone and his co-editors ended up resigning en masse because it's clearly, it was clear that Frontiers was completely captured by the pharmaceutical industry. And I don't have that slide here, but again, you know, I always say there's two clicks to get to Bill Gates. You can go two clicks on the Frontiers website and find that Bill Gates is a major funder of Frontiers journals. Now, latest development. After we got rejected from there, I went to a new journal. I showed them the peer reviews of the scientists. They read the paper. They found it credible. They liked the peer reviews and they published. And this, public, this paper became extremely popular. At one point, it was actually even higher than 44 of the last 20 million scientific papers. Um, it was read around the world until suddenly we under, underwent numerous attacks. So uh, myself, a similar paper in the same journal by Tess Laurie, there were these groups that suddenly said, they just nitpick all of this nonsense in our papers, just trying to attack, attack, attack. We defended one round and, and where they, you know, there was this one, one study that was potentially fraudulent. So we said, fine, we removed it, Tess removed it. We recalculated our analyses. The conclusions were held up, but they went after us again. And what happened here, guys, I'll just tell you, is on the second round, the, the accusations were so ludicrous and I'm exhausted. And I told Peter Manu, who is the editor, who I know, I just said, Peter, I'm not responding. I'm done. I, I just, I can't do this anymore. And so um, because we didn't respond, 
he published an expression of concern. That's his responsibility as an editor. Um, but look what I saw, uh, uh, circled here. If you guys don't know these names, there's a group of five jerks. One of these guys is from Australia. They're hired guns. We have actually traced them to an organization that funds them that's actually funded by Big Pharma. And guess who they work with? Andrew Hill. One more second. We'll get to Andrew Hill in a second. So <clears throat> this is all just about a war on repurposed drugs. This is how they do it. And so this expression of curve is actually pretty mild. Uh, I didn't mind it. He just says, it does not imply that the methodology was incorrect. The use of summary data is a generally accepted approach. And um, they just wanted to say that there are some people who, who differed with our approach, and I guess we didn't respond. Um, let's move on to our other retraction. So you guys know our Math Plus paper, which did not have ivermectin in it. And actually, I don't think this was a corrupt exercise at all. I actually think this was much more a local thing. I think this is a vendetta against Paul. His, his hospital has been trying for two years to build up a dossier of accusations on him. They needed to get rid of Paul for a very simple reason. Paul's protocols were outperforming theirs. Paul refused to champion their protocols. And Paul's protocols were different than theirs. And they cannot have that. You cannot have a doctor doing his own thing, doing good medicine when the system is doing average medicine. And so I think this is all part and parcel of that. And after we published this paper, the actual hospital where we actually showed that the mortality rate was better than most hospitals that were reporting, the hospital itself attacked the paper. And they did this ludicrous accusation. They said that they, we wrongly calculated the mortality from 6% when it was actually 10. Now, the funny part is we were comparing it to a, a worldwide mortality rate of 23.5. So it's not like the six to 10 suddenly made a huge difference in the point we were trying to make. We were just trying to make that we were observing much less. And then they attacked the fact that, <clears throat> of course, not everyone in the hospital got math plus. Most people who got math plus were in the ICU. And the funny part is they attacked the people who got all elements of math plus. The mortality rate was 28% as if, as if we misstating the mortality. And, and just to tell you how moronic that is, at that time, in that time period, there's one hospital system in New York City that in the ICU on ventilators, they were reporting an 88% mortality. And so it's actually very hard to find an ICU mortality of 28% in COVID. And so this is absolutely a superb mortality rate, but they made it seem like we over, uh, overstated the mortality improvements and they, and they tracked us. And so everybody jumps on, right? Uh, retraction watch gets it, they make a big headline. Uh, some Wisconsin physician. Uh, who is this guy? Oh, it's me. Anyway, um, so I falsely claimed whatever. I lost the paper. Um, I, this is blowback from Paul. I'm not going to blame him. Uh, we got to support Paul. But basically, the deal is this, is that this is how silly it was. That little piece of data that they attacked us on was like one tiny section of a massive paper of 200 references, 13 sections. It was actually a paper of pathophysiology uh, basis uh, and clinical evidence to support each element of our protocol. That's all it was. And then we just showed like as, as a comparative, like in one hospital where we're using it, it seems to do better. It wasn't provable. It didn't say that it's the cause. It was just sort of a gentle support in a review paper. And they went nuts. And they went after the journal. And then the journal asked us to explain what we did. We did. They never accused us of false data. They just said they didn't like how we calculated the data. The data was correct. It was the data we had when we submitted and then they said, oh, on follow-up, the actual mortality is higher. This is how you have to present it. And you did it wrong. And we explained this to the journal. But I got to tell you, the journal just was not having it. And I have the feeling that 
Uh, being in the FLCCC uh, did not help our cause, and I think they very happily retracted. So that was our second one. But hey, how about some good news, guys? This week, uh, through the superhuman efforts of Dr. Iglesias, one of our own, uh, one of the core five of the uh, FLCCC, um, he managed to repackage it. He edited it. He updated it, and he submitted it to um, Journal of Clinical Medicine and Research. Um, it also went through a good peer review, and now it's been accepted for publication. So I don't know. They can whack us back, but we fight back, and this is again going to be published. Um, <clears throat> onwards in these insane chapters. So this week, the New England Journal of Medicine, which is considered the premier medical journal in the world, they go after ivermectin here. So this is NEGM Journal Watch. This is what fills inboxes of doctors across the land. They don't even have to read the paper. They just look at their little digest, shows up in their inbox, and what do they read? The rise and fall of ivermectin. You guys see the graphic here? You know, basically they're making fun of anyone who thinks ivermectin works. And you see the caption, cheese consumption and death from bed sheets are highly correlated. Right. And so they're basically just poking fun at any researcher, any doctor who could actually believe that ivermectin is associated with positive outcomes. And these are just some nice statements that they put in. This is all propaganda. By the way, you guys want to know what link this goes to? You guessed it. It goes to the FLCCC website. These folks, that's us folks. We have an enthusiasm that is frankly religious in intensity. The group's treatment protocols, quotes, with their hodgepodge of antimicrobials, including ivermectin, immunomodulators, and vitamins. Actually, it sounds like a good protocol to me, right? Antimicrobials, I mean, wow. The kitchen sink approach, which I like. This is a deadly disease. People are dying like crazy in hospitals, and people are pissed. No one wants to go to the hospitals. But these guys don't like our kitchen sink approach, and we strain credibility. Okay, let's contrast the credibility score. Who? is contrasted with the FLCCC is the most credible. Well, in the next paragraph, my moment of greatest hope for ivermectin came when Dr. Andrew Hale presented results of a meta-analysis. This is the initial meta-analysis that Andy presented, which had incredible data showing efficacy. Andrew is a well-respected clinical researcher. Well, if any of you guys follow the FLCCC, you know what we think of Andrew. And so what they said, look how, look how upstanding Andrew is to his credit. Andrew promptly contacted me when the news broke. That news is that one trial that was purportedly fraudulent. And so Andy so graciously offered to immediately retract the original paper and even better to submit a detailed analysis of what written wrong. And then he did a revised paper. And let's look at what Andy did. So when you look at all trials, you have a highly significant reduction in mortality. And then if you take those, I love this, potentially fraudulent. I love that statement. Not fraudulent, potentially fraudulent. Eh, it just didn't look like a bubble. You know, because you know those Pfizer studies were done so cleanly. There was no whistleblowers saying how much irregularities and buried adverse events they were. You know, Pfizer was unassailable, perfect research. But here with ivermectin, those that don't look right, they took them out. Still significant, still large mortality. Then they take out, you know, some high-risk designs. Let's take those out. Now you, the mortality disappears. And then when you're left with four studies out of like, I think it was 24, they whittled it down to four. Guess what the New England Journal shows? Those dummies, those crackpots, wait, what do they call us? Religious zealots? The religious zealots, they got fooled. This is the real benefit of ivermectin as per Andrew Hill. 
Keep in mind, these are only randomized controlled trials. This is what we really look at, which are observational and randomized. And you can see remarkable, consistent, large magnitude benefits, many times with death as the outcome. This is absolutely absurd. Medicine is broken. And if you guys don't know the Andrew Hill story, he's busted. He's recorded. The whole transcript's in the real anti-Fauci. He admits that his sponsors are writing the papers for him. He is captured. Right before he's right before this and right before that, that fraudulent preprint that he put where he tacked his own paper, his university got $40 million by his sponsor. So they're employing him. And at the same time, they give his university employees him $40 million. Not subtle, folks. And um, and then this this ridiculous graph that he comes up with. And now this is his new study. This is a guy going around the world saying that ivermectin is going to save the world. And now he's saying it's all potential bias and medical fraud. And I'll just finish with this this fun stuff. So, guys, you know, us, we're we're the early treatment advocates, the religious zealots with an enthusiasm that borders on religion. Um, We like early treatment. We think it's smart. We think it makes a lot of sense. And two years later, just this week, the CDC seems to agree. So they put out this nice little cartoon monograph thing. And they're telling everyone, little public service, hey, guys, look how it says if you are at high risk, not just if you get COVID, just those at high risk. Why is that? Because their toxic drugs are only meant for the high risk, right? So mutagenic molnupiravir and poisonous Paxlovid, um, they're only indicated for the high risk. So if you're high risk, test positive, treatment may be available. If you're lucky, if you're sick enough and old enough, you might be able to get treatment. So get tested, contact your provider, find out if you're a candidate, and then don't delay. Treatment must be started early to work. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, this is our version. So our team put this together. Um, We think you should keep just simple. Never mind all that nonsense. There's dozens of compounds that work. We use them in combinations. We save lives all over the world. Just treat symptoms as early as possible. I, I don't care, skip the test, just start treatment. We have lists of providers on our website. And the best thing would be to prepare a just-in-case kit, either with over-the-counter stuff, or if you have, if you can find a provider to also provide you the prescriptions to have on hand, that would be better. You knock this thing out in two days if you started on first symptoms. And so, um, talk to your providers. Apparently, uh, the number of providers are increasing, but they're not enough to serve, serve anyone. So that's that's my little that's my little story, Flavio. What do you got? You got a better one? Well, uh, <laughs> here, here I am. So it's funny, Pierre, that we've got from different uh, stories, different locations, geographically far from each other, and we've got very similar stories. It's a horror story. So I will show you a little bit of my side of the story, what I have here, what I've been been passing through. There are just small pieces of a whole thing that in the near future, hopefully it will come out. Uh, I will share my screen here right now. Well, Pierre presented very well, and I think I will I will continue his story by showing mine, which will seem very logical to everyone here. So, first of all, I need to tell one thing: despite all these attacks, any scientist that has integrity, minimal intelligence, and bravery will never accept those excuses. I say excuses because what I have seen from Pierre, I have not seen a single argument, a single plausible argument to retract any of the papers that were retracted, any of the papers that were withdrawn. 
we have, for example, way much stronger reasons to retract other papers that have never been retracted there. So what we see is a complete imbalance and disproportionate uh, level of rigidness between the studies on reproposed drugs and studies on novel patent and expensive drugs and vaccines. So it seems that we need to show the full thing and even showing the full thing nobody accepts. Whereas just a press release is more than sufficient for a drug or a vaccine to be accepted by health agencies. This is quite kind of weird to us, right? Well, at least for those who still kept the sense of uh, the sense of integrity, the sense of logics, right? So here, just to tell you, I didn't come from the nothing. I'm not. I didn't start my research uh, life, my scientific life, in, on COVID. I'm not adventuring on this. I've been working before. I'm still working on other fields concurrently with the research on COVID-19. Okay. So this is just a timeline of the things what happens. Uh, what has behind in my case is some politics. Um, politics should never mix with science. And I've never been political in my whole life. I've been a completely 100% apolitical, okay? But they mixed me up with all this stuff. Basically, we've got a president here in Brazil that is called as the tropical Trump that mentioned my research on the, me on the media. Uh, from this point on, less than 48 hours after a true persecution on me started, okay? And we have done absolutely everything right. Otherwise, all the, we'd have many scandals out there. They tried for months to find a single patient enrolled in any of, in any of my trials to try to denounce it. Nobody was able to find a single person. They found a nephew of a person that used another medication in the hospital that has nothing to do with the research. Anyway, let's come and show a little bit more. I wish I had more time to show. The story is terrifying, trust me. Our studies were 100% independent, okay? So we did not, I donated from myself, I can say now more than $300,000 so far from my own pocket. I don't, I don't regret at all. Uh, I still have my clinic, I work, I'm doing part-time, I'm working more than 14 hours a day, uh, but that's my pleasure, that's my mission. So our study is 100% independent from anyone, okay? No conflicts of interest of any nature. Our only objective was to discover how to save lives. By the way, save lives is, what, is exactly what doesn't matter for these people that are trying to retract our papers. They don't care whether we save lives. Nobody asks whether we saved lives or not. That's very strange to me. That's very strange for anyone who really wants, really cares about what really matters. So just to tell you, when there is a mere, a purely technical analysis of our studies, we receive amongst the highest grades, okay? So we've got six out of a seven here. And so to date, to my knowledge, it may, may, there, it may exist, but I haven't found a single trial, even those from the big pharma that received a seven out of a seven, okay, for our studies. So we studied a molecule called proxalutamide. It acts by blocking uh, the androgens, the, the, the hormones that acts like testosterone, 
This is in this case a short term therapy. So it doesn't block in the long term and it actually may protect the fertility from males because it can protect the testicles and the ovaries from the attacks from the SARS-CoV-2, from the virus, okay? This would be uh, an $11 treatment. So our condition to research this drug was even though it was patent, it would be very low at very low cost. That was my condition to research. Otherwise I wouldn't have researched this molecule, okay? So received this very good grades, okay? For both outpatients and hospitalized patients, so research both. And from the classification from the World Health Organization, we are a study that they classify as very high, as very high quality, okay? No risk at all, no risk of bias in any of the, the aspects that they consider. Well, now it comes the unbelievable National Ethics Committee from Brazil, okay? It is important for you to understand, basically 98% of you are located in the US, but Pfizer, for example, they need to act in a decentralized manner. So it gets harder to pick them. So they act in different countries. We are a key country for them because we are a huge buyer of their drugs and vaccines, okay? So the National Ethics Committee, the president, the current president is keeping himself for years more than he could stay. And he does not have a single research or a single scientific article published, okay? So I think it's completely ironic that we have someone without, a, without any scientific story being the at highest position on the National Ethics Committee, okay? And more than 90%, if not all the members are linked with direct conflicts of interests with Pfizer, Merck, AstraZeneca, or Jensen, which means that, of course, that their analysis would be biased, okay? This will show a bunch of documents here, it would be like 30, 40 documents. Anyway, this is what we hear, that's what we, we wrote, we had to read, lives matter less than rules. Even if the final objective is to save lives, this cannot overcome the good clinical practices principles. First of all, GCP, good clinical practices, are principles that are meant for regulatory reasons to approve drugs, not for ethical reasons. And even though we fully followed all these principles, they, were, they failed to specify which of these principles we followed, okay? Which principle we did not follow strictly. They never told us which one. By the way, the same committee in 2018, they said they do not follow these principles. This was their excuse to suspend our study. And yet this was not uh, the principles they followed. They have a document which openly shows this. This is horrific. This is terrible. I know. Then here we come. For a study, we submitted to the high and very highly regarded journal, New England of Medicine. We submitted in April 20, okay? They knew the results. They knew what results we showed, okay? We shared everything, all the documents within. They asked us for an audit. We, we sent them an audit with four independent external evaluators. 
Still, they decided to refuse holding our papers for months because they said it was just unexpectedly good. Goodness, they were not able. What he's telling me, Eric Rubin, editor-in-chief of New England of Journal of Medicine, after seeing our raw, raw data, after seeing our audits, they were not able to find a single error. So they just said it was too good to be true. That's basically what he said here. Interestingly, that was the exact same day when they, uh, they approved, they accepted a paper from a big, from a molecule of a big pharma that costs 5,000 bucks. I won't say the name here. You may find it out there. Okay, this is New England. This is how they acted. Then we come to the British Medical Journal. We submitted in June 22nd, okay? They decided to reject us based on a fake news article from Science that I'm gonna talk very shortly uh, right after, okay? We offered everything and they know this. We thank you for your patience while we have considered this article. We have welcomed your transparency in sharing previous reviews of this article from New England and in offering to allow all raw data publicly available. So how can, you, how can they explain the rejection? Okay, there is no reason. They did, none of these journals gave a single reason to reject our papers, okay? Then it comes to this new science. They were completely disclosed. I showed them all the documents. So in the lack of arguments, they just said too good to be true with the 77% reduction. But when it comes to Paxlovid from Pfizer that showed a reduction of 89%, I didn't hear a word from this Eric Topal, the, the news, the editor-in-chief of science, okay? And they decided to keep the fake information despite the proof of the contrary. I proved they kept the fake information on purpose, okay? And then he based in almost no medical interventions in the store in the, in the history. So now how does he explain the Paxlovid? Why doesn't he use the same argument? Interesting. This is to me the confession, the confession of the corruption and complete loss of any remaining ethics or commitment to promote science, okay? Stay interestingly, funny, this guy, Eric Topol, blocked me right after they published these news articles, okay? Interesting, he didn't want the discussion, right? Discussion is what makes them frightened because it would come out the truth. BMJ, British Medical Journal, paid a story. It's paid, commission a story. They confessed this in the last email. Every single thing I'm saying here, I have documented. First of all, they are saying that it's amongst the worst medical ethics violations. But well, we saved hundreds of lives. Maybe saving lives is considered as a medical ethics violation according to this new criteria used by journals, big pharma, etc. So their message is saving lives is against humanity. I was also accused of crime against humanity. Uh, it took a few hours for Hague to judge and say that it's not proceeding. Okay. And here we go. Uh, they based on a regulator. This regulator is exact that guy that is that has very strange relationships with some some from the big pharma perhaps and has not a single research by the way he's from the communist party 
which is exactly the opposite from the current president's party, okay? And he started to run after me, to persecute me 48 hours after the first mention of the president, okay? This story has more corrections than the story for itself, okay? So it's very weird. They paid the story. They leaked information. This, what this regular, regular says here, I do not have the time to show all the documents, but everything he said is false and he leaked an illegal, okay? We already won from him in justice and we will more, more and more and more. The point is how many lives would have been saved if it was not, if this, all these forts to block the treatments were not done. After a few days, New England and British Medical Journal asks why I didn't appeal for the decision of rejection. That rejection that happened here without any explanation. Well, they rejected based on nothing. Uh, we think, okay, British Medical Journal is not you what it used to be. These journals are not what they used to be, or maybe I used to be naive, okay? Maybe. So I am completely uh, disappointed what I've been seeing. And they are still with our study. Now they are requiring the full statistical plan. Raw data was not enough, okay? They need more. I don't know what they are searching for. They are trying to find an excuse, not an argument, to try to reject our paper. Right now, they are not being able to reject it. And I will not withdraw while they, not, they do not re reject. I will wait for them to wait to see why they would, will re reject our paper. They haven't. They haven't had the time or the courage to reject it based on nothing. I really wait they receive their views, okay? I really wait they rethink. Because the British Commercial Journal was the journal that started publishing some interesting articles questioning regarding the lack of raw data. And I can say, I'm amongst the only researchers in the planet that has 100%, 100% of the trials I ran, I conducted, have full data sets public for anyone from outside, for any external evaluation to analyze. We are amongst the only ones. And now we dare those studies on vaccines and patent drugs to publish their raw data as well. The same ones to, who keep hunting problems in order to retract journal, retract articles on proposed drugs. They never research for problems in these other papers on vaccines. It's very interesting how unequal the treatments we receive is. Pfizer, final, final ones. Let's, Pfizer has got a molecule that looks like proxalutamide called enzalutamide. There's just a bit difference in terms of uh, cost, 11 bucks versus more than 5,000 uh, bucks. There's a problem here. Proxalutamide is stronger than enzalutamide. However, Pfizer cannot use enzalutamide for COVID. Why? Who, who has the molecule is a company called Astralis. So Pfizer bought the rights to use it for prostate cancer. So they invented a study in Sweden, okay? They faked uh, a randomization. They put four times more severe patients using enzalutamides compared to using placebo, using nothing. There were no deaths here, even with four times more severe patients and two times more overall patients, whereas there was a death here in the placebo and they could make a huge gymnastics statistically 
to interrupt the study because the enzalutamide arm stayed for longer. And then they say all studies on anti-androgen who use basically proxalutamide should be stopped right now. They did it very on purpose. They did not, they were so explicit. They should have been more discreet. And then what we have found a week ago, who stopped the study and made them say this? Pfizer, as an independent data monitoring safety board was supposed to be independent. Pfizer was the one, interesting, right? This is just a bit of our story here. Uh, Pride and Prejudice, uh, significant advances in science often have a peculiar quality. They contradict the obvious common sense opinions. Can a Brazilian scientist bring the cure? I, I never meant to bring the cure at all, goodness. There, this person said, this person, a great guy. I never met him before. He was just completely independent, okay? I never met him before he wrote it. And I just wanted to share with you this papers. These are translated, okay? They're originally in our language, which is Portuguese. It's not Spanish. Uh, and we think that uh, who knows have its origin, the, the cure, as he said, carried out by a Brazilian endocrinologist and researcher. Okay, Ken is here showing up. Sorry. Ken, be here. After all, the research was too good to be true. Uh, what is this too good to be true all about? Too good, too good to be true is the great excuse when you do not have arguments. The Brazilian's line of research has bothered the denialists of pharmacological treatments that do not come from the large pharmaceutical industries. Proxalutamide is a, a company is a, is a, with a, like 10 employees. It's not big at all. That's the reason why they gave us a drug and they allowed to sell it for $11. With overwhelming evidence indicating that male gender is a risk factor. That's what we identified. So there's another one to good be true that was published here in Brazil. Uh, we started having negative international repercussions from newspaper. Okay, it's global. It's the fourth largest uh, media uh, company in the planet. Okay, and they called our our proxalutamide the news chloroquine. These indirectly sponsored by Pfizer because, because those who gave the information to the journalists are sponsored, made us to have negative international repercussions, okay? And they faked, they falsified and confidential data and leaked. Although they said all this, when it comes to real independent analysis, uh, we come with very high grade, very high quality of research. When it comes to real, technical, scientific, without secondary interests, our results, our trials are considered at amongst the highest level, especially for transparency. We do not see the transparency we have in any other trial. So sorry, but that's true. That's it. Flavio, I mean, you know, one of the themes of your story is just how, you know, I keep saying it's not subtle. This stuff is not subtle. They don't hide it very well. It's so blatant. It's so out there. You know, what Ruben did at New England Journal of Medicine is just a joke. I mean, I mean, that's just bizarre. And you have the emails. Literally, it's just too good to be true. We can't find any fault with your data, with your science, with your data sets, but we just don't trust it, right? Uh, by the way, Eric Rubin is the same guy who early in the pandemic 
there was a big article about about the hospital wars when we were trying to treat these patients. And I was an advocate for uh, aggressive treatment using corticosteroids early in the hospital in the ICUs. And everyone attacked me. And there was an article in the New York Times Magazine. And you know what his quote was? The, the reporter, the journalist asked him, um, what do you think about Dr. Corey and his advocacy for corticosteroids? You know what he said, Flavio? He said yeah. that I got lucky. I got lucky. Oh, it was lucky. Lucky well, Pierre. Well, well, what, you're what, too what, you're Kimball. too good to be true, and I'm lucky. So cheers, man. <laughs> Kimball, right? I think we should go to Vegas. We exactly. win a lot of money there. I, I wish if, if we could bet on medicines there, I would do pretty well. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that was really good, Flavio. Thanks for all that. And uh I you know the, the New England Journal, the BMJ, what they did to your studies. And, and I really like that guy who defended you, the Nobel Prize winner. I mean, he made unassailable, clean arguments. I mean, it, it, and, and then you see that the media judge calling it Bolsonaro's new chloroquine, literally, that's what they're yeah. doing in proxalutamide. It's just insane. It's insane. And that's why we got to keep talking about this. We got to get people to know you just can't trust this stuff. They're going to put in the journals what they want to put in the journals, what they don't want in the journals, they're not going to put in the journals. And so you just can't trust journals right now, especially on these kind of medicine and on anything repurposed. You know, for sure, if you if it shows up in a big journal that it doesn't work, I'm going to tell you it probably works, period. Yeah. So the, this is an opportunity to show that we are not inventing and you're not creating any conspiracy theory here. We're showing documented arguments. Yeah. And we don't want to have conflicts. That's the yeah. thing. We don't have conflicts. You think I want to lose my job? You think I want to get attacked in the papers all the time and, and have to hear all this nonsense? I would rather do much other things with my life. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit quiet when this, this insanity is going on. So I'm glad I'm glad you stood up. I'm glad you fought back. I've seen the emails lately with you and BMJ. It's just they're just sad. I mean, but they're just, not able to answer to a single to a single argument. Yep. They're being yeah. just quiet. They're pretending dementia. So it's it's interesting that if if here any of the studies on the any of these vaccines or Paxlovid or etc. had undergone the scrutiny we underwent, they would fail in the first time, the first step, in the first moment. You, you know what I love? So so here's the here's the key things. You made a really good point. When you look at the enzalutamide trial, again, not subtle. They supposedly randomized them. Suddenly, in the enzalutamide arm, right, you have way more severe patients. They wanted to show that androgens don't work in COVID, right? Because they want exactly. to make sure their, their drug was better for prostate cancer. And so they literally, how do you get four times more severe patients when you randomized? And how do you accept that randomization? How can the data safety monitoring board do not re-randomize after seeing this Because they, they own these trials. They can do whatever they want. Then they stop it early when they got the results they want. They, they can do whatever they want. And, Goodness, and then and when the you, criteria they used, the criteria they used to interrupt the study does not exist for a DSMMB. I know. They, that's the thing. They can write the rules so they go, we're stopping for this reason. Like there was the, what trial and you was it? We stopped. And it's funny, the oh. independence. The independence was Pfizer. By the way, by the way, Flavio, it reminds me of the Molnupiravir study in the hospital where suddenly Merck stopped the trial. And you know what the statement was on the on the clinicaltrials.gov? For business reasons. Oh, sure. Just like the business supply reasons. for the principal trial. Sure. They, they stopped the ivermectin due to supply reasons. I know. Just I know. So it's just, it, you know, and then the vaccine trials, 
you know, they, they, they start vaccinating the control group right after the trial ends, right? Yeah, to disappear the control group. Ethical reasons. And, and, and the world just watches this. The entire world buys vaccines, starts vaccinating everyone. I, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. Let's go on to what, what are we doing now, Betsy? This is just we have We have questions, but I have to ask you, for business reasons, how much of the income from these wonderful journals comes from pharma? Huge amounts, huge amounts. They all of their articles they buy they buy reproductions and 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 copies of them, and they exactly. get lots of money. They, listen, have, uh, when, when I, the when I the journal publishes one of their trials, that's a cash cow. That's a cash cow. Well, that's real independent information in the public interest, isn't it? Uh, okay, and by the way, great. we completed ten days, ten days with the full data set out there from the ivermectin study on 147, the information for 147,000 people. Nobody was able to find a single inconsistency so far. And you can be sure that they were crazily looking. They are crazily looking for consistencies. Let, let me just say one quick thing about Flavio and his work, because, you know, Flavio did studies on early treatment on ivermectin, on nidazoxanide, um, but, you know, his insights into the role of suppressing androgen activity and the findings of the proxalutamide are, are really world changing. And I have to say, you know, when I discovered his work and I reached out and, and, and Flavio became uh, colleagues and friends and I learned so much about the androgen aspect, you know, that became part of our protocols, right? We don't have proxalutamide, but that's why we use the tasteride and spironolactone and Casadex. And I just have to say, Flavio, you know, during Delta, especially like later Delta, we needed those androgens. I was using androgens a lot in the fall, and I got a lot of people through out of the hospital. I know it saved their lives, and I don't think I could have done it alone with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. I mean, we, we needed a lot. To, I mean, I know Delta's not as bad as gamma, but I mean, I just find that your work is singular. It's unique. It's historic. And, and this is the kind of treatment that you get. And, and I think, you know, you're an endocrinologist and your insights and your group's work, and you've done multiple papers on, on different an androgens, observational trials, clinical trials. And I just find, you know, that result of too good to be true. You saved hundreds of lives just in that trial alone. And so I'm, I'm proud to have, have tried to carry on your work and disseminate your work in our protocols because, you know, it was really your work and your insights that, that led to, to that, that part of our protocol. And so, you know, God bless you, man. What keeps you both going? This is terrific. Yes, what, what you've done and we appreciate it, but with all of this garbage being thrown at you, I mean, they're trying to destroy your careers, trying to destroy your work, your reputations, so you can't do anything. How do you go from being totally mad? It's, it's called not having a choice. There's not a choice. There's no going back. There's no sitting down. I mean, there's, I, couldn't, I, I could not keep doing what I'm doing. I mean, I, I don't want to say I feel chosen or morally. I, maybe morally obligated is the better choice. I mean, um, we, we landed in this position, and... I would do what anyone else in this position I would want them to do, which is if they have if they have the truth, they have the data, they, they know what they're doing and they know how to help people. I think they're absolutely obligated to commit going on and disseminating that. Betsy, the lives we saved pay off. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, let's talk to some of those people who have lives here. They have questions. Well, we've hit eight o'clock. Can you guys stay a little while longer? Yeah, let's do. Let's questions? do five. Hopefully, uh, Christina and Scott and Jackie answered some questions in the in the Q and A. But uh, yeah, I shoot. Think, I hope okay. we didn't shock everyone so much today because I we think really showed some. Your stuff is pretty harsh to to listen to, to be <laughs> honest. But yours is really, you know, I, I mine's not easy either. I mean, we're still getting attacked. I mean. That poor Mexican study, Flavio, they went after the, the leaders of the health ministries of Mexico who published a paper on their program and they retracted and every paper in the world now is attacking them. Washington Times, Ellie, ah, whatever. Massive PR, massive instant PR. All right, let's see, let's go back to some just basic questions that, for doctors. How about this from Lisa Smith? Do you plan to take the mask and social distancing recommendations off your protocols now that COVID seems to be waning? Pierre, I guess. Yeah, it? probably. I mean, if it, I mean, listen, if it becomes, uh, if it's not, um, you know, you're not getting 800,000 a day and it's not as deadly. Um, yeah, I think the uh, risk benefit analysis of those, I think that changes. Right. So it's a milder disease now. Um, and if the incidence is very low uh, and also we're rolling back mask mandates and and just, you know, here's a subtlety that people don't understand. Although masks have been in our protocol, our recommendations for mask wearing have actually been uh, very different than all the mandates. We've always said that there are limited circumstances in which they might be helpful and none of them are totally protective, but it's basically confined, confined and congested areas with poor ventilation indoors. And, and only then would it offer some protection for some amount of time. You spend enough time in that condition with a standard mask, it's not gonna help you. So it's, it's of some probably protection. The studies really don't show any, but those, those, that's because they study these you know, wide ranging uses. I mean, if you focus the, to the highest risk areas, there'd be a role for masks. So, so the fact that mandates are gone, you know, there still might be a role for a mask if you're high risk in a, in a, in a but I guess, I guess if the incidence is low, it's probably not there. So um, actually that's a good question. So we probably should, social distancing is always kind of a joke because it's not really a droplet transmitted disease. It's aerosol. So uh, social distancing probably doesn't have as big, as big a role, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll probably roll them back. That's actually a good question. We should talk about it as a team. Um, here's another here's another good one. Good doctoring here uh, from Cheryl Radecki. He says, I take ivermectin to keep from getting COVID. Should I take a break at some point? I've been taking it usually twice a week for a year. This I want to answer this. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh, we, should, we saw a very uh, a huge problem for the continuous use of ivermectin. Liver kidneys protection. So, <laughs> so he's being he's making a joke, folks. <laughs> That's a joke. No, no, but the, the, the joke is not the, the issue. The protection is not the joke. The protection is true. And it's directly correlated with the amount of ivermectin used. I need to tell you, I've got an experience now with approximately 300 patients that restarted ivermectin during the Omicron. Uh, Omicron uh, peak. Yeah, I had a total of zero patients that got infected with COVID nineteen. Yeah, okay, it's yeah. huge. So but, many coincidences. But the uh, thing is, Flavio. So, but but here's the here's the other way to answer. So, I like your question. Is that 
you know, you shouldn't worry about taking over the long term because in, in uh, Flavio's most recent study where the city, uh, you know, hundred uh, well over 100,000 patients took it, they noticed in those who took it for the long term with the highest cumulative dose, their kidney function got better, their liver functions got better. So it was very protective for those organs. But on a practical level, right, if Omicron incidence really decreases, it's generally mild. I don't know the person's risk factors, age and all that. I, I don't think it's probably on a risk benefit ratio. It's not probably not indicated depending on their risk, right? If they have a lot of comorbidities, obese or whatever, or I wouldn't say vaccine, I'm not going to go into the vaccine status. Um, well, maybe I should, cause I mentioned it. I, I have concern of those who've been vaccinated with Omicron. It's my belief that uh, vaccination is actually a negative risk factor for outcomes with Omicron. But I, 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 I don't know. I think you'd have to make a personal decision depending on your risk profile um, you know, there's the other thing is, let's leave us on whether you should stay on it. Omicron is generally mild. It responds really well, especially to the combination of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. You could always just have, keep it on hand, take it upon first, just do early treatment. And so there's a few options for you, um, but that's how I would approach that question uh, on an individual level. On, on, you raised the question of Omicron. Now, guys, both of either one of you, uh, Robin Raptosh wants to know, is there a difference between Omicron 1 and Omicron 2? Can you get each one more than once? Flavio, you want to take this BA2 thing? You know anything about it? The BA2. So I have some comments over this. Uh, yeah. First of all, we are seeing a, a, a late peak in deaths in South Africa where the Omicron first, first we, we cannot say it was where it first started, but it was first uh, announced and right. spread. But we are seeing some late uh, events. Uh, what I can tell from here, first of all, I am seeing more post-Omicron complications than during Omicron. So I am seeing thrombosis. I am seeing uh, complicated uh, sepsis, uh, septic shock. I am seeing some very strange things, and their immune system are so so suppressed. But I'm not pretty sure because all these patients so far that I'm talking about are were previously vaccinated. So I, I am not sure. I don't want to give any uh, wrong. I don't want to give any wrong message here. This is just anecdotal data. So. Uh, we are seeing these. The point is, BA2 seems to be a bit more aggressive than the original Omicron, okay? We published a study, by the way, yesterday on Frontiers. We were able to, by the way, Pierre, we were able to publish in Frontiers. That's a miracle. Uh, Wait, what did you publish, though? Hold on, what did you publish? Oh, it's genomic, genomics. I think it's uh, I was going to say, it's going to be something not controversial and not, it's not going to imply uh, money-making opportunities for anyone or money-losing opportunities. Exactly, exactly. It's a very nice, very illustrative uh, study on genomics. I think I sent you earlier. It's, yeah, well, I, I actually saw it. I, I didn't get a chance to read it yet. It's a beautiful paper. It's a beautiful from our group research. Claudia Thompson leads the group. She's amazing. Genetics, she's, a from, she's on our side. Okay, so she fully disagrees. She's amongst the person. I think she, we could invite her once. I think she's amongst the persons with the most, uh, the the strongest arguments regarding the vaccines, the against this mandatory use of vaccines. She's genetically based, molecularly based. She's very strong and deep in the subject in this matter. 
So All she's right. got real arguments. We may have a good. chance to solve her. Uh, she speaks good English. Uh, she's from the South. Uh, by the way, we're, I'm just telling you this because I think that's we should start being focused on the post-COVID when it's about to come, the post-COVID area. So my for main concern is, as just like they did with the suppression of the treatments on the cheap treatments, they will probably suppress the the reports on the issues and correlations and deaths. Now they are giving all the excuses for deaths, right? So anything that you do in your life may be an independent risk factor for dying suddenly from sudden deaths. No shoveling, sh shoveling snow, breathing too fast, but, right? We saw all those newspaper articles, like they're trying to explain away all these deaths of people who are suddenly arrested. And they will keep it very hard. They will push it very hard in order to avoid any sort of correlation. So yep. we need to be very careful. We need to watch it very closely. So our role in the post-COVID, we'll, we're not done here. Here, We're not done here. We need to follow this after. The post-COVID is our mission to keep following, to watch the overall mortality. Overall mortality is way more important than COVID or not COVID. Of course. We've said that. All matters. So everyone, yep. everyone needs to know this. When in all our studies, overall mortality was the outcome because it matters more because whether the person died or not matters more the people, if the person died from one thing or another thing. So we need to be very careful because when the person does not die, probably long-term consequences, sequelae like uh, neurological issues may be there from a, a stroke, for example. And we are facing, we are facing very weird patterns and not only in people that are like fainting or having thrombosis, but also in necropsis, they are seeing very unusual patterns and they are afraid to bring this out. Yeah. I have talked to some pathologists and even those who are not from our side, they are experimenting. They're very, they're having difficulties in, in describing that and in, in trying to attribute this to some other thing than the vaccines or the COVID itself. I do want to Flavia, we're, we're hearing that from um, funeral home directors, the embalming, when they're preparing the bodies. They're, they're seeing all sorts of odd, like, tissue collections within the, in the circulation of these patients who are dying. And they believe it's all related to the vaccine. At least some of them are coming out and saying that. Others aren't. Yeah, but this will be suppressed. We, need to, we, we shouldn't be surprised if all this data will be completely out, uh, the reality will be completely apart from what we will be seeing there. Yep. Because what we are facing is a completely different reality. It looks like we are in another dimension, another planet, another time from what we see. Now and and they're, they're going to want, they're going to want to forget this. They're going to want to go, you know, I was on a, I was on a, a show with uh, Robert Malone the other day and he said someone that he said, he said, you know, it's going to start happening in the future is they're going to stop talking about this and they're going to start giving out the awards. So you're going to start seeing all these people who manage the pandemic getting awards. That's and, not going to happen on my watch. I really hope and they're going, going to write the books. They're yeah. going to have and, the books. That oh, I'll write them a book. The all right. I'll write a book. Good. Good. Listen, I got a question you're going to love. This is a good one uh, from Angie Van Cleef. Is there a movement that the FLCCC is working on to start an actual parallel medical system for doctor-patient 
freedom of choice on more than just COVID? So the answer is yes, and I don't have time in my day to pee. So um, it's more theoretical, but but no, I mean, that question is a great one. That is a very common sentiment. I know of many people approach me. I call them my fellow dissidents, uh, which like Flavio, um, th- there is a huge desire and demand. People don't want to go to these hospitals. They don't want to go to this totalitarian, top-down, regimented, protocolized kind of care where the patient seems to be you know, not considered and they don't want that. They want more personalized care with, with a doctor who's really focused on the best outcome possible and the freedom to do that. And so um, there's an appetite for it. Um, I have heard of some high net worth individuals who are starting to make plans and, and there's a few different ways of going about it. I think they want to start first with clinics and then maybe urgent care or emergency and then, and then maybe a hospital. But I got to tell you on the, on the backside of all of this, that sentiment is real and, and people want their healthcare to be different. The system failed. We have to build back a, a new one that's, that's much more effective. How would you get drugs? You can always buy drugs. Medicine. I like using the word medicines. Drugs just sounds wrong, but um, uh, I was about to say I, I buy drugs the way same way I always bought them at the corner. No, never mind. No, 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 no. Okay, fair enough. All right, do you have time for a couple more? Let's see. We have uh, our- one more, Betsy. It's seven fifteen. One more, last one. Oh gosh, which one can I yeah, give you? you here to tell a story on the our patients and my patients that I'm following up. Uh, very thoroughly with their blood exams, the agreements that I've had. Yeah. Remember I told you? Yeah, yeah, totally. Betsy, uh, so I am following my patients for post-COVID and post-vaccines very thoroughly. This year, we are doing a follow-up with a very lymphocyte subpopulations, all types of uh, immunological IgGs, all antibodies, not only specific for this, uh, anti, uh, autoimmune uh, screening for several different autoimmune disorders, thrombotic disorders, all these disorders, more than uh, more than 120 exams with every single patient. There are sort of agreements we have uh, that health insurances understand that these may be less expensive than dealing with the long-term consequences, if not identified. So I am being able to request this or to order these exams without any cost for the patients or for us. So okay. we are going to be able, and they say, oh, this is exper- experimental. No, the experimental was the whole thing. The yeah, 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 yeah. Experiments. I am just trying to catch as much as I can from what ha- has been done to our population. So, and what I am facing is not very nice so far. I am seeing a, a real immune suppression on subpopulations of lymphocytes that looks a little bit like HIV when not treated. It's nothing to do with HIV. The, these HIV. are post, post-vax or post-COVID or both? But it looks, it is immune depression, immune, just like uh, the, uh, the acquired immune deficiency. It's an acquired immune deficiency. I hope it doesn't last for that long. Uh, I hope you're wrong. I hope I hope it's only temporary. I hope that we are going to come back to normal. I hope that the current, the recent increase on overall mortality, age-adjusted overall mortality, that we are seeing that we were not seeing before the vaccine and we were not seeing before, are only <laughs> temporary. 
Okay, so I really, I'm really skeptical about trusting data against vaccines, but data is starting to become overwhelming. Overwhelming. And that's the reason why we are following our patients so thoroughly here. Approximately 2,000 patients we are going to follow. Well, Fabio, if you figure out how to fix them, uh, the world would be, again, indebted to you because there's going to be a lot of them. All right, so that's just more questions. Some results. They had two patients the last two results. Last question. You, you just raised what's going to be the last question then, because number what was question eight, but we had to skip 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 a couple. Deirdre Artiemko, do you know about any potential correlation with what's going on now with COVID, the COVID vaccination, and HIV/AIDS? Well, I think Flava shorted. Oh, I think that's a different question. It's a different question. It's a different question. I thought I, I consider it to be a little bit protective, maybe because of the antivirals they take for long term. Or, or maybe I think maybe the question is referring to all this sudden insistence on checking your HIV status and then the HIV codon that's inserted into the thing. Um, can I just pass on that tonight? It's just uh, it's just not that whole issue is just not. Um, it's not formed well, well enough for me to answer. The relations are not very well established. Yeah. And if there is, it's not that strong, thankfully. Yeah. So more, okay. more, more will be revealed. So thank you. To, to be continued. And thank you, fellas. I mean, you, thank you for being there. Thank you for putting up with everything. Thank you for continuing to work and saving lives, which what really Fabio. Matters. Fabio. Thank you. Bless you, Flavio, Peter, yeah, all of you. I've got a few announcements, folks, just, uh, just to tell everybody. We have three important announcements. Uh, first, some very useful fun. We have some wonderful new educational videos uh, for you folks. Take a look. We have a slide here that shows you. Um, one is how to use our eye mask protocol to help yourself and your family stay well that because it's a medical protocol this will help explain it the other one how to make kefir yum that's good stuff you know good to know how to make kefir at home and uh let's see where's my other page here Three, four. okay yes and these are now on the odyssey channel so enjoy the videos next we have a warning and the warning, uh, we can use your help with this, folks, because there are some imposters out there. Uh, as this slide says, there are a number of fake sites, pages, and social media accounts online pretending to be associated with the FLCCC. That or looks Dr. like my Twitter page right there. Isn't that my Twitter page? <laughs> no. It's a fake one? <laughs> no. Oh, 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 geez. Um, we should point out there is a website called Dr. Corey, drpierrecorey.com. That's legit. Now, that's not a fake website. But it, there are these out here, these other things that are not uh, associated with us. The FLCCC Alliance is a nonprofit, does not sell medicine. You know, the most thing we ever offer is uh, is like a mug here to, to help as a donation, but we are not into this business. We're not a profit-making operation. So if you see something that purports to be selling you major stuff that is claiming to be the FLCCC or claiming to be Dr. Corey, 
please notify the platform that it's on and notify us. You know, we want to know about it, support at flccc.net so that we can check it out and we can notify people uh, and stay away from all of this kind of garbage. And finally, I have a happy job. And that happy job is to thank all of you who have donated to us. Yes, we are a nonprofit. We do live on donations. That's it. Because without them, there wouldn't be any means for the doctors to continue doing the research that they're doing, uh, which they've always been doing on the side beyond all of the medical practice that they were doing before they got pushed out of the hospital. Uh, we also have a situation where, you know, we're trying to get the word of their protocols out. And we're also having to fight the misinformation that's out there with a program like this and to hire some people to, you know, get this on the air. And, you know, there, there's work to be done. And we are up against a mountain of money, as you know. I mean, we're up against a whole continent of money that just uh, is happily making money off everything that they have and finds all of the repurposed medicines that our doctors have used safely and effectively to be a competition with all of the new stuff that instantly gets approved. And so we have a major job to do to just tell you that there are doctors who are basically only trying to save lives. They are not in this to make money off of medicines. They are not in this to do anything other than to try to save lives. This foundation, this organization, this nonprofit, uh, the Alliance, we call ourselves, is simply about sharing information. And we've been giving information away. We've been giving protocols away for free since the very beginning of the pandemic. And that has, um, we know, saved lives. You saw one of the videos. We Thank all you right. all for everything you've done. And oh, we'll be back again next week with another weekly update. And our, our Flavia will be back helping patients. So will Pierre. And we just continue. We're, we're doing the best we can. We Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.